Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, presented by Curriculum Track, a brief retreat from your daily routine to explore the latest thinking and practices from faith-based educators and instructional leaders from all over. Join us as we swap innovative ideas geared towards promoting your school's mission, and we'll keep the conversation as fresh as you like your coffee. We're joined today in the Teacher's Lounge by a longtime friend of Curriculum Track, someone I refer to as a teacher's teacher, someone I'm honored to have been impacted by both personally and professionally, Dr. Mark Eckel. Many Curriculum Track users may be familiar with Dr. Eckel by name as they explore the faith learning content. We'll be glad to talk with him about that today, but he's an author, not only of that content, but of several books and resources, and we're excited to hear more from Dr. Eckel's experiences today and what led to the development of that content and some of the other things that Dr. Eckel is doing. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So we have a lot to talk about. I thought we'd try to do this in three parts, beginning by tracing your experience in K-12 education and then focusing on what led to the faith learning content that so many schools have found to be so helpful, then getting into some of your current work and how that may even be influential in faith-based education today. So if you're okay with that, I'm sure we'll find other rabbit trails to explore along the way. But let's start with your work in K-12 education. You're currently working with adult learners, right? College and beyond. Are you currently teaching at the high school or junior high level now? Not right now. I actually, my last opportunity to teach at the high school level was in 2020. Though I taught for over 20 years in high school, Christian school settings, starting in 1983, actually. And then all the way through 2005, I was teaching high school. I was also teaching for ACSI, going through the country as well as internationally, doing a lot of enablers for ACSI, specifically in the arena of faith learning integration. I actually taught homeschool, classical Christian homeschool groups. And those groups were especially interested in my teaching Gothic horror literature, of all things. I've gone far beyond one particular track of thinking and theology. I really refer to myself as an interdisciplinary. I'm very much interested in all things. But back to your simple question, I've been teaching for 40 years now. This is my 40th year, and uh, I teach undergrad students at public university here in Indianapolis called IUPUI, and I also teach PhD courses. Those courses are taught at Lancaster Bible College and grad school in Pennsylvania. So I've really been all over the map in terms of age level, for instance. I started teaching in 1983 in the junior and senior high school area. Now I teach all the way through PhD students, which includes students internationally. All over the world, all over the curriculum spectrum, all over the age level spectrum. Now, of course, I have grandchildren, so now I get a chance to teach them. <laughs> So would you consider yourself an educational theologian or a theological educator or some other mix, maybe different terms altogether? That's a great question. I would say everything is theological. In fact, I have a poster that hangs on my office door that says everything is theological. So ultimately, everything from the tiles and the ceiling to the carpet and the floor and everything around us, if God made it, then he sustains it and he is the culmination of all things. He will bring it to its ideal conclusion. Looking forward to that time in eternity for that. But ultimately, since I believe everything is theological, I don't think in terms of a bifurcation of things. I don't separate stuff out. So I don't think about education as theological education. I just think of it as how do I express this from a biblical point of view? 
whatever the this is, whatever the subject area is at any given moment. But I like theological educator, you know, that's got a ring to it. Yeah. But what drew you into education? So as opposed to pursuing theology and the branches, what that could look like, how did you find yourself in a classroom? Boy, all the way through my undergrad, even into my grad school, I have a undergrad and religious education. My THM is in Old Testament studies. My PhD is in social science research. Then I went back to get an MA in English. I've been all over the place in terms of educational background. But what got me into it was a back door. I honestly thought I was going to be a pastor. And I love to preach, and I still do. I preach at my church. But what really got me into it, I think, was Francis Schaeffer. So when I was 16 years of age, one of my classmates who was an atheist, he was a brilliant soccer player, all-state soccer player, and he sat behind me in homeroom. And I'll never forget this. He leaned over the seat during homeroom announcements when I was 16, and he asked me, how can I believe in something I cannot see? That question bothered me so much that I sought out answers. The only answer that I found that had any kind of foundation to it was from Francis Schaeffer. So I read all of his books. By the time I was out of high school, everything that had been published by that time, at least. And uh, if I would recommend one book to anybody, and I would say here that this would be a, a junior high and up level book, it would be How to Be Your Own Selfish Pig. So I think that book, you should run out and grab that book. Susan Schaefer McCauley takes all of her father's really cool stories and puts them in one volume. It's really done well for youth through adults. I think that kind of gives a smattering overview, but ultimately I began my educational practice in Christian school education. Okay. And that was high school? Junior high, high school. Junior high, high school. Okay. And you developed a lot of Bible curriculum as you were teaching it, probably. That's actually my first introduction to you. I followed in your footsteps, uh, two or three teachers after you and picked up some of your resources and published work. We still used How to Be Your Own Selfish Pig. I thought that was fascinating. The students loved it too. So thanks for recommending it. But what are some of your published resources, instructional resources when it comes to high school, junior high Bible curriculum? I started first teaching in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I was there for six years. So I would get up at four o'clock in the morning. I would write curriculum until seven. And then I would go and teach. And then I would come home afterwards and be with family in the evening. And I would do it all over again. All summer long, I would study about how to teach what I was teaching. I tell that because, honestly, I've, I've never had an ed course. So I really didn't have an educational course until maybe about 2017, 2018, when I was doing a master's in English here in Indianapolis. And my point in emphasizing that is that I'm a theologian. I had to learn how to teach, and I learned how to teach on the fly because I was thrust into this thing. I had six preps a day, and I was creating curriculum as I went. I actually learned how to teach from Comenius, John Amos Comenius, which is what our institute is now named after. But to the question of resources, so ACSI was publishing courses then with a few of us who were in the classroom doing this teaching. And the first coursework that I created was Let God Be God. And that's the attributes and characteristics of God. Then next came Timeless Truth, which was an apologetic for scripture. That is that it's a historic document and we follow its historicity, authenticity, and authority. Since that time, I've been developing all different kinds of things. I speak in conferences for in-services for Christian schools. I've created all kinds of 
essays that would be helpful. And perhaps the most helpful aspect of what I do now presently can be found at my website, markeckel.com. And I mention that only because if you go to the website, within a few seconds, the little email pop-up thing will come in and uh, you can actually type me your email address. I send out Friday emails, Friday emails, BCC, so nobody sees anybody else's email address. But I do that because I post a lot on social media and through the website, but I have so many other thoughts and ideas that ultimately don't see the light of day unless I do something like an email blast. So if folks are interested in those kinds of things, they can find it there. There are so many essays that I've written on teaching. And anytime, within 30 seconds, I would say, of hearing me speak, every single K-12 teacher in the world knows I've been in the classroom. And that really matters to them. People need to know you've been there and done that. I think it's important, first of all, to say that the living curriculum, the teacher is the most important kind of curriculum. That's what I would say to anybody listening to this now is that you're listening to somebody who is a living curriculum. If you're a teacher, you are a living curriculum. You literally exist in front of your students, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, that you are an epistle that is a letter known and read of all men. And because of that, people see Jesus in you and they see truth in you and they will follow you if indeed you have something to follow. That kind of gives an overview. There have been lots of other books and essays. I've written encyclopedia articles, peer-reviewed journal articles, all different kinds of things. I would be happy to meet any of you every Friday through an email. I've only been aware of your email, your Friday email for a short time, but it quickly has become my essential reading on Fridays. I was Actually, at an airport this last Friday, that came through. I'm like, oh, I got to read it. I got a few minutes. I'm going to read it. I can't recommend that highly enough. Definitely worth to read it. It's wide and it's deep and it's broad. There's just a lot of stuff there, a lot to like. One thing I've discovered as I've used your resources, taught from your materials, read your articles and so forth, is that you tend to, and I want to make sure I say this the right way, you tend to avoid the doctrinal distinctions. You seem to be very much about essential doctrine, letting scripture speak for itself. Would you share your thoughts about that and why that's important to you? Sure. Let me start with maybe just an educational principle. I think this educational principle can be extended into any arena, believing and unbelieving, past, present, future, K through 12, through higher education, doesn't matter. For me, I always think about two aspects of life whenever I'm teaching. I think about origins and outcomes. Now, we use different kinds of terms for these ideas. By outcomes, I mean, what do I want my students to leave my classroom with today? For instance, when I teach my course that I'm teaching tomorrow, reading, writing, and inquiry, for instance, I have one thing that I want my students to know every single time I teach. We spend 75 minutes arranging and organizing and then culminating that particular activity to show an outcome. What's even more important for the Christian is that we know our source, the origin from where things come. And so I would say that ultimately my responsibility as a Christian educator, even in a public setting, is to help people to ask that question, where did this come from? How did we get this? And you can fill in the blank on this. If you're a believing person, it doesn't matter what church you go to or what denomination you're in. What really matters is that you actually believe in a creator and that this creator is personal, eternal, and triune. And that creator has made all things. 
So as even I tell my students in public university, you begin your assumption basis from two points of view. Either you believe God's eternal or matter is eternal. Those are your only two options. Because of that, we think about this from an origin point of view. I actually believe in things like order versus chaos. I believe in something that gives me direction and intention. Where does all of that come from? It comes from an origin base that says there is a God who has made all things. He has spoken to us as human beings through his scriptures. And now my responsibility then is to reflect those kinds of principles that he's literally embedded in creation. Proverbs chapter 8 tells us that wisdom is embedded in God's creation. My job then is to help people to actually consider how it is that we think about anything from a Christian point of view. Do I believe in certain doctrines that are really important to me in my church? Of course I do, but so does anybody. What I'm really most interested in, is there a God? And if there is a God, has he made this world? Has he communicated with us? If he's communicated with us, how is it that I should follow that kind of communication? And then what kind of practical principles should I be living out in whatever vocation I'm invested in because of those principles? So that kind of gives a broad view of this, but I probably wouldn't pigeonhole myself in any kind of denominational setting when it comes to my teaching generally in social settings like this one. And how does that apply to, let's go back to the outcomes of the classroom. If I'm a Bible teacher or even just a core content teacher in a classroom, any grade level, the focus on essential doctrine as opposed to maybe the unique distinctives of, of different dominations. Yes. Let me approach it from the core curricular aspect. We've done 20 different areas of education at curriculum tracks through the faith learning integration emphasis. I actually started with four, which were a science and math and literature and history. So if we just took those kinds of ideas, and even if we broke them down into the sciences and the humanities, we would look at things, look at life from a Christian point of view very differently than our unbelieving colleagues would. I'll give just a few examples. It doesn't matter where you are in terms of grade level. The question really becomes, do you believe that an author wrote something and that author actually meant what they wrote and meant to write what they wrote? Now, in our culture, what really is of greatest concern to people is what folks refer to as a human response or a reader response theory. That reader response theory focuses on the individual instead of the original content of the book. You could be reading Dr. Seuss. You could be reading Dostoevsky. It wouldn't really matter. Did that person have an intention and a direction for their particular reading and writing in whatever venue it might be? I would argue, yes, that has to do with an origin issue. Or take the concept of history, for instance. We have to ask ourselves the question, where did history begin? For the Christian, history begins in eternity. According to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, there were certain things that happened before the world was made, not the least of which was the plan for Jesus to die on the cross for the sin of the world. So when we begin to study scripture, we begin to see some of these things that would matter to us. If I were to take Let's say, for instance, the concept of math. And we ask the question, do I discover or create math? From a Christian point of view, we discover what God has already made. And so it's not something we create. We certainly utilize the gift given to us in that sense. Or take science. Science is simply an observation of the world that is, the existence of the world all around us. So science is our friend. There is no dichotomy or a separation line between 
of faith and science or religion and science. No. What should happen is simply that we read scientific discoveries all around us and say, oh, wow, isn't that cool? Isn't it something that humans finally got their act together and discovered that thing? Like I was reading just this last week on this new layer that scientists and biologists have discovered in the human brain that actually helps our immunology and also creates less friction between the brain and the skull. It's just fascinating stuff. But guess what? Doctors have just discovered this. We're talking about, this was discovery in 2022, but nonetheless, here we have these discoveries that are still taking place. Why is it that we're only discovering it now? Because we're simply uncovering that which God has established. The great king said it's God's pleasure to hide a thing, and it's the king's pleasure to uncover it. We have that great honor and opportunity to uncover all of these great mysteries and wonders in the world around us, and then give praise to the one who has made all things. I think about Johannes Kepler, for instance, who had just discovered the third law of planetary motion. I know we're getting into the deep weeds here. <laughs> third law of planetary motion. And guess what he did? He prayed. And we can actually reference his prayer, identifying that he was giving praise to the one who had made this, then at the same time, thanking God for the opportunity that he had to actually uncover this great, great truth, the great law in creation. I could go on and on about all of this stuff. This is intriguing. It's like a mini masterclass on faith learning integration, which is one of the things we want to talk about. Before we get there, though, I want to just address an elephant in the room, or at least one that comes up as we work with teachers a lot. Teachers will say, everything that you just shared, it's so deep, it's philosophical. I mean, it's accessible. It was intriguing. They don't want to stop you. I don't know that stuff. I wasn't raised to know that stuff. I wasn't trained to think that way. I'm the product of the other approach to education and the contrast that you were just setting up. I am not qualified to teach biblically or to integrate my faith. And then you were referencing living curriculum and the teacher being the living curriculum. How would you address a teacher who feels that way, who says, I believe it. I believe in God. I believe in scripture. I don't know if I know how to teach it that way. What would you say to them? I would say to everybody, start small, start somewhere, but start. And by that, I would suggest that you gain materials that would be helpful in this regard. Find people that are speaking about or talking about or writing about these ideas. Let's be honest. Every single person who is a teacher is looking for curricular ideas constantly. And there's a reason why people are making lots of money as teachers on places like Pinterest, because they can create their curriculum, create their ideas, and then people purchase those things. I would suggest that this is no different. And for all of us, I would say that we need to find a good resource for an ongoing theological education, something that would start us down the road. I'll go back and say, if you have a copy of How to Be Your Own Selfish Pig, you got a good start because there's a really good understanding of simple, direct teaching. Here's another example of this. And since you're talking to me, I suppose I should say some of these kinds of things. Something else that we started back in June of 2018 was what we call Truth and Two. And this Truth and Two process is actually, there are over 200 of them now. They're videotape ideas that take one concept and explain it simply in two minutes, 300 words. Now, if you don't like watching video, and I don't either, we actually include the full text so you don't actually have to listen to me or watch the video, though my tech guy is really cool because he includes all kinds of cool visuals in these videos. 
But nonetheless, I would find Truth in Two. You can find us at the Comenius Institute YouTube channel. You can follow me in social media, lots of different places. Or you can just come to markeckle.com and find some of the connections there. I'm happy to help in any way I can do that for anybody. Bottom line is to find simple ways to learn biblical truths, and those biblical truths then will give you a foundation for thinking biblically and Christianly about all things. I say that because it's really important that teachers understand that we go to all kinds of conferences, we do all kinds of personal development courses, we have expectations from administration and certification, you name it. We're responsible for lots of different things. We should not think it's any different, that we should spend time thinking about, how do I actually do this? And what are the kinds of things that I ought to be thinking about? I'll just give you one example of something that anybody could start right now. I would say, ask yourself the question, in whatever course I'm teaching or courses, what are some basic principles of the Bible that I already know that would apply to my courses that I teach right now? So if you're in Curriculum Track, you can go to any of our helps that we have for those kinds of teachings about writing or journalism or all different kinds of subject areas there in Curriculum Track. And you can find these helps that will allow you then to plug in whatever it is that you're doing to coursework. If you can come up with 10 for a year, that'd be pretty good. Hey, start with five, start with one. Start with one idea that communicates something about what you teach from a decidedly Christian point of view, and then begin to say to your students, this is how we think differently as Christians. I think that would be something that would get us down the road. Sounds like you're saying they have to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, work. Like we work at everything else as educators. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to talk more about that faith learning content and make sure that everyone who's listening understands what it's about. But before we get there, I want to ask you the other question. So we talked about the teacher who feeds into this process of faith learning, but what would you say is the ultimate outcome? What should we be trying to prepare our students to do in our faith learning process? Christian education is not the same thing as public education. It's not just public education plus. It's completely different outcomes. What does that look like for you? So if I were to say it simply, I would say it this way, and I would say this to anybody. If you were to ask me, what is my definition of education? I would say it's one word, ownership. Hmm. I want my students to own what they believe. On the public setting, that's different for me now and how I communicate with my students now. And I could talk about that if you'd like. But in the Christian setting, I actually ask my students to write a lot because writing helps students to consider to think, because writing and thinking are the same, have connections, obvious connections. And by writing, students then begin to think about, how do I explain this to somebody else? My beliefs, my thoughts, my concerns for the future. And there is where they begin to own their own thought processes. I would encourage in my teaching a lot of questions. By asking them questions and having them deal with their own answers to their own questions, they begin to own what it is that they say they believe. The ultimate outcome for me is for people to own their belief. Now, we come at that lots of different ways. We can talk about approaches and methods and strategies and those kinds of techniques that we think would be helpful to people. And I'll be happy to dive into those kinds of things. For all educators, it's my belief that we should get students to own their belief system. 
whatever that belief system may be. I have to be honest and say that I had students in my classes, in senior high classes, who would come to me and they were honest and they knew me that I was easy to get along with and I wasn't going to slam them for anything. And they would say to me, I don't believe this. I don't believe the Christian way of life and things. I literally would stick out my hand and shake their hand. And I would say to them, thanks for being honest. You know, that that's great. Let's continue to talk about these things. Obviously, you have classwork to do, that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I want you to consider carefully about what it is that you actually leave this place with. I have to tell you that because I've been teaching so long, that the outcomes really come in the form of text messages and phone calls and emails and social media messages. Students will say to me, I remember when you said this, or I remember when this particular incident in a class, or for all of my days, I'll never forget that you gave us this one thought to think about when we were studying XYZ. Those kinds of things, I think, matter most to me because now I'm hearing from students themselves and they will tell me, this is how the teaching has changed their life. It wasn't me necessarily, though I was the instrument being used. It was the Holy Spirit through the scriptures and through all of life itself that God has made and created that allowed these kinds of things to happen. So ultimately, the outcome is to get students to own it. We can talk about approaches if you'd like. Honestly, I think that's the ultimate outcome for me. Well, you know, student outcomes, that's a current buzzword in K-12 education these days. And Jay McTie is even trying to tie curriculum mapping to student outcomes even a more efficient way these days. He has an article about it. And so I love that student outcomes, and I wrote this down, student outcomes equals student ownership. I think that is a great way for Christian educators to wrap their mind around what does this look like? It's a student owning these truths as their own, personalizing them, embedding them into their minds and their hearts. So thanks for sharing that. Now, you do a lot of work with adult learners, college and beyond. Could we just spend a few minutes thinking about if you were to address K-12 educators maybe in this context of outcomes and ownership, what do you see as maybe a flaw in the educational system or maybe pitfalls as far as preparing our students for what comes next, college and life beyond? What would you say to K-12 or even high school educators? Please help your students get here before you send them my way. I would say that we should spend less time on method and more time on content. For students, they need to know something. I would have discussions with students and we would start a new unit or a subunit on whatever the discussion point was. Then I would ask them, okay, let's look at this text or this author, or let's open scripture. And they would say, inevitably, somebody would raise their hand and say, we want to continue to discuss this. My response would always be the same. You don't know anything yet. You have to wait until you know something in order to discuss it. But they have feelings. They have feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, they have feelings. I wish I had a nickel for everybody who said to me, I feel like, instead of, I think. <laughs> yes, we live in an emotive culture for sure. I'm actually trying to dissuade my students in public university from using that phrase even now. This isn't a feeling. Those come later. Let's think, please, first. So I would say that generally in education settings, let's say, for instance, if you take a BA in education any place, they're going to have all these different courses on methodological approaches quite frankly, I think you should have one course on that. A lot of content in whatever areas of life that you think you're going to be teaching in. And K-12, obviously, especially if you're in upper L, for instance, you have a lot of stuff that you got to deal with. Lower L, same thing. But nonetheless, there's more content to be learned. I'm going to get on a hobby horse here. So 
Hang do on. it. What really makes me shake my head is that we tell teachers what and how to teach as if they aren't teachers. This is like me going to Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs and telling him how to throw a football. Seriously? I'm going to do that for the great Patrick Mahomes? No, I do not want to come to your classroom and tell you how to teach. There might be curriculum that we need to follow. We can have that discussion. But the way that you teach is dependent upon you as the educator. So I've actually hired you to do the teaching. So go teach. Now, if you need me to help you with that, or if we have a professional development days or whatever, that's all fine and good. But nonetheless, I actually trust you to do the teaching. So please do that. You will find lots of different ways to do this. I have to tell you that I live with a second grade teacher, okay? Live with, she's my wife. We've been married for 43 years. She's a second grade teacher. And I am a high school, college, graduate school prof. I'm telling you what, living with this woman, getting her insights on life is amazing. And she is constantly learning. She is constantly looking stuff up, new ways to approach learning. She doesn't need a course on that. She doesn't need somebody to come and tell her a how to do those things. She will discover it on her own. Why? Because she's a creative teacher. She loves to teach and she's really good at it. So let teachers teach. All right, I'm climbing down off my hobby horse now. My point and emphasis here is content is king. It is not methodology. It's not another course on how we should think about the culture of the day at this particular moment. That's not the crucial issue. Crucial issue is, do you know your subject area well enough so that you can spin off in whatever question that comes up in the classroom and deal with it at that particular juncture? So ultimately, the outcome for teachers in the classroom is not to be told how to teach. It is to give them all of the resources that they need to make sure that they can come up with that on their own. And then they are going out to establish that content and approach to the content they think is valuable for their students, which that leads me to another issue. And that is that you have to know your students. Every single thing in life is about context and culture. So I'm in a different kind of context now and culture than I was in Christian school education. But I might be in a rural Christian school. It might be very small. I might have double classes in one class. That's a very distinct possibility. Or I might be in a large Christian school. Or I might be in a kind of school that has a very direct and distinctive rules-oriented perspective. Or I might be in a school that is very free. All of these things need to be taken into consideration when you sign on to teach in any given institution. All of that because you are going into a place that in a certain time and space that folks are interested in having you think about things from this particular point of view. That's your responsibility at that juncture. The key to all of this is knowing your subject area and whether or not you can actually understand it yourself before you teach it to others. Well, you know, these days we have Google, Alexa, Siri, even AI available to answer any question we might have at any moment. So some would say memorizing facts, teaching content is not as important as it might have been at one point in even our more recent past. But it sounds like you're saying content is important. Content is king. Students still need to learn facts. Teachers still need to teach facts. Is that right? Let me just say what a big fan I am of one particular educator whose name is E.D. Hirsch. The initials E.D. and Hirsch is H-I-R-S-C-H. And E.D. Hirsch was most well known for in educational circles, something that he wrote back in 1987, I believe, called cultural literacy. 
in that book, Hirsch argued for the fact that he and anybody who taught had to have an understanding of a cultural background. That is, why did somebody create or do or speak or write or establish themselves as a leader in whatever context it might be? So here's an example of this. In order for us to understand the Constitution of the United States, you're teaching whatever in high school or maybe upper L, you're teaching about the Constitution. It's really helpful to know something called the Federalist Paper. Now, the Federalist Papers give the cultural context of how Madison and Hamilton and some of these other guys are writing the Constitution. What were they thinking about when they were writing the Constitution? That gives us a cultural contextual idea of how we think about whatever the subject area might be. Let's take, this is, uh, we're recording this on MLK Day, Dr. Martin Luther King. We actually put out a Truth in Two, celebrating the history of that great man. When we think about MLK, we have to think about this in a different way in 2023 than Martin Luther King might've thought about what he was giving in his address in 1963, in that great, I have a dream speech. When we think about the cultural context, the time and place, of 1963 and compare it with 2023, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, how am I going to frame this or approach this from a cultural contextual point of view that may be very different was 60 years ago than it is today? That particular approach, I think, with E.D. Hirsch, in fact, he went on to create all kinds of curriculum. You can find books entitled, What Your First Grader Should Know, What Every Second Grader Should Know, What Every Third Grader Should Know. There are these wonderful books that have all of this content, wonderful content about the arts and language arts and science and exploration and history and discovery. It's marvelous stuff. But all of that then gives students, especially young minds, we all know that young minds absorb content. Early on, the best time to teach language, of course, is early in a person's life. They're sucking in all of this content, and it gives them a framework from which to operate their lives and their thinking as they continue to grow. That's why I believe content is so important. The more we give students, the more facts and knowledge and information they have to gain. The problem with Alexa, the problem with Google, is that it's outside of a cultural context. It is a punctiliar point in space and time that literally just answers one question that has no understanding of a wider scope of why that question is asked, much less what the answer may be. I'll stop there and say that would be my general response. So then how would you respond to this latest trend or maybe latest pendulum swing towards the teacher as facilitator. I was just reading an article the other day that suggested that one of the impacts the internet has had on education is in the role that the teacher plays in the classroom. The article boldly proclaimed, gone are the days of having a teacher playing the role of sage on the stage. Now teachers should see themselves as a facilitator of the student's learning, even a coach coming alongside the student as they learn together in this age of information. How would you respond to that? My response to that generally is this that the teacher functions in a multiplicity of roles at any given moment. I believe the teacher is a sage on the stage, but the teacher is also a facilitator at times. The teacher is also a guide. A teacher is a questioner. A teacher is a shepherd. There's all different kinds of metaphors and action points that teachers take depending on the given context and culture, the situation in which they find themselves. And this, by the way, includes students. So 
how I approach one student is going to be very different than how I approach another student, given my knowledge of them as persons. Boy, if we wanted to get into a real deep discussion, we would probably want to talk about the difference between equality and equity and how I treat everyone the same as human persons, but at the same time, I recognize their differences. So the sameness may be different for that different person, depending on what they may need. They may be a person who needs a lot of encouragement. Somebody else may have great, tremendous confidence and only need me to come and pat them on the back every now and then and maybe do some guidance. I would say that teachers, we fill a lot of roles all at once and sometimes separately, but I would not say that we are one thing or that schools are one thing. And I'm certainly not a facilitator of knowledge. I've actually been hired to do something because somebody thinks I have not only the content behind me, but the ability to communicate it. Isn't that just the way it works? About the time you get to the good part, the bell rings, or you get called away to do something else. Unfortunately, we've reached the end of the allotted time for this episode, but don't worry. We continue to roll the tape and we'll invite you to join us next time as we dig into this topic a little bit more deeply.